You are going to Psalm 89. This is the fourth, appropriately, of our Psalms for Advent, uh, a kind of, um, not really a diversion from our series on the Psalms, it's perfectly in keeping with it, but four Psalms that have been especially, let's say, helpful to the church in, uh, in remembering Advent and in, in celebrating it together. And so Psalm 89 is, is quite long. Actually, this is going to end up being two sermons. The first one will go from verse 1 to verse 29, and so I will read that much to you this morning. Uh, there, is a, there is, if you will, a shift or a turn in the tone of the psalm, and so I'm going to give attention to that next Sunday as well. We are going to kind of sit and camp out in the first part of it, and then you'll hear more next Sunday about that kind of... Uh, 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 kind of the relationship of the, of the first part this morning to the to the latter part, which is kind of a turn. It's it's a turn from like joy and trust and faithfulness to Lord, where are you? Uh, and so we'll talk more about that on Christmas uh, morning together. Uh, but for now, let's begin with verse one. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, O Yahweh, God of the armies, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day. And in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord. Our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. You can probably hear the echoes here with the Magnificat and Mary's song. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. 
I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. This is the word of our Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. I want to begin by not, not telling you so much a story. It's not my story, but it's, uh, it's something I witnessed recently. Uh, a fellow named Frank Turek, who's a Christian apologist, he once wryly joked that the two tenets of atheism are, number one, there is no God, and number two, I hate him. I remember in the 90s and the early 2000s thinking that the rise of atheists like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins were a sign that atheism would eventually, uh, you might say, heartily grow and multiply all over the place. Uh, Many thought so. Um, And I do think that we have seen a growth of atheism in our day, but I think the predictions that it was going to absolutely overwhelm either spirituality or just broad general theism have not turned out to be true. Most unbelief today in America might reject Jesus, and it might reject the Bible, but we are not a people who have ceased with all forms of spirituality. Most Americans still believe there is a spiritual or at least paranormal realm, and if social media is to be believed based on uh, surveys and things like that, there's been an enormous increase in what you might call old paganism in controlling energies and healing crystals and speaking and actualizing realities, things like that. We might have ceased in many places to be a baptized people, a people who love Jesus or a people of the Bible. But we have not ceased to be a people who have some care for the spiritual realm and in many places some kind of belief in, let's just go super broad and say a higher power. And so, yeah, neither have we stopped believing in God. Again, there might be a lot of rejection of Jesus or of the Bible, but many people still believe in some sort of higher power. And what's interesting is that almost universally, Americans who believe in a kind of higher power will also believe that this higher power loves them. Okay. So whereas it might be, if, to go back to Turek's joke, uh, it might be you know that, that uh, an atheist might believe something like there's no God and I hate him, it also seems like the majority of uh, what's been called moralistic therapeutic deists, that is the kind of religion that guides a lot of our day, uh, if, if they do believe in God, they might say something like, there is a higher power and he loves me. What is remarkable about that, I am going somewhere with this, is that that is actually a distinctly Christian idea. The idea that... Uh, Uh, let's just use the terminology of creator, the idea that your creator is also one who loves you and values you and cherishes you is a distinctly Christian idea. And apart from Christian conceptions of the divine, we really have no reason to assume that the creator of all things would love us. It seems natural to us today because the religious air that we breathe insofar as we do has had an enormous Christian influence over the last few hundred, a few hundred years, few centuries. But I want you to notice that the love of God is, in fact, a very important concept. That doesn't surprise you. But that it also goes together with His faithfulness. To, to take a look at Psalm 89 together, beginning in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. The, the, uh, the, the, the steady, the unmoving uh, 
Palmer Robertson even says we could translate it the covenant love of our Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Steadfast love, faithfulness. Apparently, for the fellow who wrote this psalm, uh, Ethan the Ezraite, we don't know much about Ethan. We know that he probably lived during the time of David's rule or of Solomon's rule. Beyond that, we just don't know much about him uh, or his fellow Ezraites. I know when you see Ezraite, you might think time of Ezra. Uh, we, are, we are not there yet. We're still in the, the, the first temple and, and David and Solomon. And so he sings of the steadfast love of the Lord and his faithfulness. But then go to verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of your holy ones. Assembly of your holy ones. Uh, probably a reference to uh, the assembled angels of God. Sometimes you may have heard about this in, in, what, in what theologians call divine counsel theory. I'm not going to spend too much time on that this morning. But just the idea that in, the, in God, in the company of, of the council, you read a bit about it at the start of the book of Job, uh, where, where God is addressing all of the heavenly ones, and Satan is there as well, and, and so on. And so in verse 5, we hear of his faithfulness, in this assembly. And then verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who as mighty as you are with your faithfulness all around you. Then down to verse 14, uh, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Here's the pairing again. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Down to verse 24, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, that is with David. And then verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm. The Hebrew there is literally remain faithful. And so again, steadfast love and faithfulness together. And then finally, verse 33, which we won't get to this morning. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Apparently, it's really important to the Lord that we understand that his steadfast love and his faithfulness go together. And as I said earlier, for most people, again, Christians or not, most people, broadly speaking in our culture, if there's a belief in God, there's probably a belief in divine love. In other words, even if you're not a Christian, if you do have some sense of God, you probably assume that He loves you. And what, I've, uh, what I tried to express earlier is that's actually at odds with a lot of ancient cultures. There was this fellow named Rudolf Otto. He was a religious philosopher. Uh, he, he wrote a book some decades ago called The Idea of the Holy. And basically, he made the case that all ancient cultures believe that the uh, presence of the divine had to be mediated. So if you came face-to-face, unmediated, with the divine presence, however, whatever they called it, that you were done for. You had to have a mediator. Divine presence was threatening, and so you needed priests, or you needed specific rituals, or you needed special sacrifices, or you needed mystical, ecstatic experiences. to draw. You needed some kind of mediation to get in. And in terms of world history, the idea that God is loving and approachable and wants to love you is entirely weird and unique. 
And if that surprises you, it's probably because you've grown up in a culture that says all religions are basically the same. And so you have a functional picture of, of divine love borrowed from, or received from Christianity matched with the pluralism, which is all religions are basically the same. So then it's easy to make the leap and say all religions must have this kind of concept of divine love. Not so. But these things seem really important to God. One that we know of His steadfast love. It's in Psalm 89, so even that we sing about it. And also that we, we are catechized by our singing to know that this steadfast love goes together with His faithfulness. That is, the keeping of His promises. And so it's, this seems important to God. Two things here. That those two go together, steadfast love and faithfulness, and that they not be doubted. Because... If we're honest, when suffering comes, that's usually the nature of doubt, right? It's either God is God is not powerful enough, or doesn't uh, or or doesn't keep his promises, doesn't keep his word, faithfulness, or that he doesn't love me. I mean, when, when hard suffering hits, and and lights seem to go out, so to speak. Those are the things that, go on the, that tend to go on the chopping block in our hearts. Does God love me and is He really keeping His promises to me? And so, our friend Ethan the psalmist begins by proclaiming that he will sing of steadfast love and faithfulness. And he grounds that hope in a promise that God made to David. That God made to David, not to him, But God made to David. So God made a promise to David. He made a covenant with David. And because of that, I can sing. I mean, look back at the text. So he says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. With my mouth I'll make it known. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Because you have said, what you you should expect to read next is, because you've said, I've promised you, Ethan. He says, no, you've made a promise to David. Because of that promise to David, verse 4, I can have confidence that I can sing, verse 1. And even look at verse 4, I'm even going to sing to future generations. I will establish your offspring forever. That's part of the promise. Build your throne for all generations. And that is why, verse 1, I will sing of your faithfulness to all generations because of this promise in verse 4. Sorry, I kind of conflated that up in my notes. But the, the, the promise to David in verse 4 is the grounding for verse 1 that I can sing to, to the generations here and yet to come. Now, here's why that's interesting. Because we tend to ground our faith in personal experiences. And that's not wrong. But, but I'm trying to contrast that with what we see in the psalm. We tend to ground the, the, the solidity of our faith in personal experience. So I had an experience of God, or I had, a, I had a dream, or I had a sense or a feeling. But the psalmist grounds his understanding of who God is in, get this, promises God made to somebody else. That's an almost totally foreign concept to us. So let me, let's try to get at it together. In the ancient world, you had what we would call, uh, our language, a relationship with God, right? We, we speak of that rather freely, but in the ancient world, the only hope or prayer you had of a relationship with God was, was that your king had a relationship with God, so to speak. That, that God was connected to your king 
was the only hope you had that God was connected to you. This is why we talk about Jesus fulfilling the three offices uh, well, that he came to fulfill. And our little ones know this because you've been catechized, but anybody who wants to give me that, the first office that Christ fulfills, you know it? Anybody can just call it out. A prophet? Yeah, the second one is? Priest. Well done. And the third one is? A king. Wonderful. So the three offices of prophet, priest, and king, the three uh, by office, think of that as job or work that Jesus comes to fulfill. All three of these are connected to all three of those offices, prophet, priest, and king, connected God to people and people to God. So the prophet gave you God's words. The priest gave you God's forgiveness. The king gives you God's protection and God's promises. So if your king was God's man, you were at peace with God. That, that doesn't mean, though, I mean, that didn't mean that individual sin and individual righteousness didn't matter. You'll remember that in Ezekiel, both the rulers and the people are condemned for their idolatry in different places. But the psalmist knows that the only reason why he has any claim to God's steadfast love and faithfulness is because God made promises to David. And if God is with our king, then God is with us. If God is with our king then God is with us. That's the, the, the basic assumption, the reason why the, the, the Davidic covenant is getting referenced here. And so starting in verse 5, there is, if you like, a song of praise. Verse 5 begins, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of your holy ones. Now, when we hear... Uh, oh, sorry. Where I'm starting there is, is he, he moves into this time of praise and not only praise of God, but praise of God's strength. Um, you know, verse 6, who, who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like Him? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the Holy Ones, awesome above all who are around Him, and so on. The, the focus so far is on God's strength. And what I want to remind you of this morning is when we are weak, What our soul needs is to sing of the strength of our God. When we are weak, what our soul needs, what my soul needs and what your soul needs is to sing of the strength of our God. This is different from popular approaches uh, in the world where we are trained to sing songs about our own strength, right? You've got this. You can do it. You're the best. You are strong. You're empowered. You matter. You're enough. Or um, I even have in my notes, if you feel like it, reference Frozen, right? Let it go. I'm going to be who I want to be. Cold never bothered me. I'm strong. I'm mighty. I'm powerful enough to pull this off. The psalmist sings not about his own strength, but about the strength of God. Because that is what his soul needs. And it's what your soul needs too. Some of you need this because you really believe that life is going to be rightly ordered when you finally get it through your head that you are good enough, strong enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people will like you. <laughs> and, and you have, for, for some time now, been trying really hard to be strong enough. So I would ask you, how's that working for you? C.S. Lewis once said that anyone who believes that they are a truly good person should try really hard for a couple of weeks to be a good person. 
And once you make a mess of it and wreck it, then at that point, maybe reevaluate what's possible. It is very easy for us to believe that if we only got enough of our self-affirmations in order and actually believe them, then we'd be really strong people. But the song you actually need is one of the strength of your God, whose words and commands and promises will actually steady you in the raging storms of life. The psalmist starts to sing about how God is God over the ocean. Go look at verse 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Some of you read, read that or hear that, you might be thinking of the time when Jesus stilled the stormy waters with his words, right? Peace be still. And I think that's a good, I think that's the connection you're meant to make. But why is it important that God rules the seas, that God rules the oceans? That's actually a, re, a, a repeated sort of theme, if you like, throughout the Psalter. That's because in the ancient world, the seas were not so much a place where you, I mean, it's not just like the beach where you go on vacation. The oceans and the seas were the place uh, were the places where dark and evil and mysterious things lived. The seas were the place of mystery and monsters and death. And I, I, I'm, right now, for, uh, for some time now, I've been slowly making my way through Moby Dick. And man, you get a sense that when, when a guy was signing up to go on an ocean voyage in that day, he was signing up for pretty good odds to die. Because anything could happen. So many terrifying unknowns and possibilities and unexpected weather and and so on. And really, the ocean is still a place of obscurity and mystery. I I found out while I was preparing this sermon that for all of our seafaring and deep sea diving and all that, we have explored about 20% of the ocean. 20%. About 80% of the deep blue remains entirely unseen by human eyes. We have no idea what's in there. But God does. You see what the what <coughs> excuse me. What the psalmist is doing is is basically it's the same thing Jesus was doing when he talks about mountains moving into the heart of the sea. It's not that he means for us to be supernaturally empowered for geographic reorganization. He's grabbing the biggest thing he can think of a mountain, and putting in the lowest place he can think of, the sea, right? To say that the biggest things are not really all that, are, are not frightening at all to our God. He can take the mountain and dissolve it into the sea, right? Something similar is happening here. So I want to express that our God is powerful and great and mighty. So what, I'm gonna, how am I going to do that? I'm going to think of the most mysterious, unknown, terrifying place I can and remind you that he's Lord over that too. That's the point. And if you think about it, this makes sense when you get to Revelation and the sea burns up, right? Because now there's no, no place where evil can hide anymore, is, is the idea. So he's trying to think of the most mysterious, powerful, terrifying thing he can. His mind goes to the oceans because they're full of darkness and mystery and uncertainty and, and death. And, God, and he says, my God has given all these promises to my Davidic king. And he's in charge of the oceans too. They do not intimidate him one bit. He's saying that all the oceans of the world, that is, that is a goldfish bowl of water on God's celestial countertop. 
and He controls all of it. Because when we are weak, the need of our soul is to sing of the strength of our God that is bigger and greater and stronger and altogether unintimidated by the roughest of storms and seas and even, hey, let's, let's go with sea monsters. That's what Rahab is, by the way. Verse 10, if you got confused and you were like, wait, Rahab, I thought Rahab and the spies, wasn't she? No, 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 wrong Rahab. Uh, this Rahab is uh, it's a, kind of a nickname for a, a sea monster, a sea creature. Sometimes in certain places, Rahab was also like the, the image of, of Egypt. And so, so destruction of Rahab equals destruction of Egypt. But Rahab's also mentioned in the book of Job as a big, nasty sea monster. And so it's part of the same idea. The temptation then has always been for, for God's people, for us, for you and I, to take God's promises, and I'm as vulnerable to this as anybody, to take God's promises and we make them only applicable to a certain subset of relatively mild troubles. Okay? So we, we take God's promises and we limit their applicability to a subset of relatively mild problems. We might even go as far as to say like first world problems. Okay? And just as we're prone to, to pick and choose which of God's commands we want to obey and which ones we want to ignore, we're also tempted to create a category of, of what I call religious comfort. And so religious comfort is like, you know, that's for like if you feel guilty or if you have a bad habit you need to break or if you need some help with a, a, a resolution in life new direction sort of thing, but it's not really strong enough for hard marriages. It's not really strong enough for anger issues. It's not really strong enough for dark nights of depression. It's not really strong enough for sexual attractions or impulses. To this, the psalmist says, I'm going to think of the biggest, nastiest, scariest sea monster I can imagine in the scariest place I can imagine, and remind you, verse 10, that that's a dead carcass if he crosses with God. That's what it says. You crushed Rahab like a carcass and scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Now, I am not saying that a a simple belief in God or a simple singing of a psalm just makes all your troubles melt away. I am saying that the promises of God have already budgeted for your hardest days and your hardest nights. That the promises of God are worked out and known in community with God's people. You notice, psalmists don't suffer in silence. They confess and admit and sing in the presence of a community of people. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 15. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. This is probably, by a way, a reference to Numbers 23. Can we go there? Next, please. Numbers 23, where we read, uh, He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. So you remember all the Davidic king language in 89, and now we have this reference to a festal shout, or the shout given at the feast. The festal shout is the shout of victory, heard at the feast after a great battle has been won. One of my favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy is right after the battle of, I believe it's the battle of Helm's Deep. The people of Rohan and and the victors have this feast to celebrate their victory. 
And at one point, they raise a kind of festal shout. They, they all raise their glasses in memory of the, of the fallen. And uh, they say, Hail the victorious dead. And the whole room responds, Hail the victorious dead. Marissa, when I die at my funeral, after the service, I want people to feast, raise their glasses, and say, Hail the victorious dead. You'll make sure that happens. In the presence of all these witnesses, I've said it to you as well. Festal shout is a, is a shout of celebration, of victory. And so think of what the psalmist is saying here. He has spoken of roaring seas and troubles and monsters, and he's talked about the power of God, where the power and hope and victory is found. Not, not in isolation, right? Not just, to put it in a Christian context, not just me and my Bible isolated, as important as that is, and it is, but in the company of God's people who know how to talk about their God and sing about their God and sing about His victory. And I want you to notice the change of language in verse 15. This is really cool. In verses 1 through 14, so far it's been almost a kind of conversation just between God and the psalmist, mostly. Uh, So we can walk through that real quick. Verses 1 and 2 are in the first person. I will sing of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. Verses 3 and 4 then address God directly. Lord, you have said. Okay. Then verses 6 and 7 kind of have this uh, rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord? And then in verses 8 through 14, he asks the same question, but now he's talking to God. Lord, who is like you? So who is like our God? And then he kind of turns, as it were, to to God and says, Lord, who who is like you? But then in verse 15, there's a shift and he joins God's people in the halls of feasting. And now it's not just, I will sing, but it's verse 18, God, you are our shield. Okay? For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, our, our, our Davidic King to the Holy One of Israel. Now that's, that's really cool because the, the, psalmist had, the psalmist had no qualms about shifting back and forth in a psalm with who's being addressed and, and how. This is one of the ways I think the psalms are a bit different from, uh, from a lot of, say, more recent Christian praise songs, even a lot of older hymns. There, there tend to be they, they, they tend to be songs almost exclusively like songs about God or songs sung to God. And they tend to be either mostly like individualistic about my experience or communal about what we do and what we believe. And they tend to stay on one track or the other. Not the Psalms, though. The Psalms have no issue with just swinging from one form of address to another. For, from, from I to we, to, to you, Lord to quoting God's words back to him, to singing about him, to singing to him, and then singing back about him again. So in verse 15, what's happened? The psalmist has joined the people of God who know what the festal shout is. That is, they know how to sing and confess and feast together. He then returns to singing about the promises given to David. Let me see. Okay. (laughs) The clock is being unkind to me today. Beginning in verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one 
chosen from the people. I found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. Notice the connection between God's victory and David being anointed as king. David being given promises. So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall, uh, also shall strengthen him. And look at the blessings given to David. The enemy will not outwit him. The wicked will not humble him. I will crush his foes before him. Strike down those who hate him. My, stead, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. So again, Ethan is not saying these are promises given to me. He's saying they're promises given to David. And because of that, because I'm connected to King David, these are my promises as well. I will set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. Remember the sea got mentioned earlier. And he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So why does he bring up David again? Because the point made earlier in the psalm is still really important. If God is with our king, then God is with us. If God is with our king, then Emmanuel, God, is with us. The covenant that God gave to David, the promises that God gave to David, is where he banks all of his hope. So two things quickly here. David and David's kingdom cannot be stopped. That's one thing that comes out in the text. And then David and David's kingdom have been given the promises of steadfast love and faithfulness that we read about at the start. David is now the one who has rule over the seas and the waters and the monsters. You remember that? Uh, that was verse, uh, verse 25. I will set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. David and David's children are the ones who will lead in the victorious festal shout. So do you begin to see why Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy? Tracing the line of the Messiah from Adam to David to Jesus. Because if God is with our king, then God is with us. This was the covenant promise. David was given this high privilege of verse 26, saying to God, you are my father. No one got to talk to God like that. So do you see then how Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, who's always been the divine Son of God, takes on flesh as a son of David and brings these promises to a higher, more spectacular fulfillment than Ethan ever dreamed. Jesus comes claiming not just to be related to David, but that God is actually his father. David could say that he was God's son because God told him he could, verse 26. That's, uh, that's how my David-eyed will talk. He shall say to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. But when Jesus said he was God's son, people understood he was not only claiming Davidic kingship, he was claiming to be God's actual son by right. John chapter 5, thank you. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, Jesus begins his ministry, telling them, I'm the true and better David, so to speak. If you, if you believe in me, you'll find rest for your souls. And then he demonstrates his power, right? So why can we find rest for our souls? Because he's the one who's killed the dragons and the sea monsters of sin and death. And all the trouble that we face, Jesus has it well in hand. Now, we can't see that because we're right in the middle of it, by the way. You can't smell the aromas of victory in the great hall because you're still in the middle of the battle. So what do you need to do? You need to sing about it. You need to talk about it. You need to find yourself 
with great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. If he is your king, you can confess, Emmanuel, God with us. This is indeed why the Advent and Christmas celebration is all about. Look at what God says to David in verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The firstborn and the highest of the kings of the earth. Could that be said of David? Well, certainly in the region. You might say at one point it could have been real strongly said of Solomon. But we know that the Old Testament still leaves us waiting for a David eyed, a son of David, who will actually fulfill this promise. David indeed was the firstborn of this mighty line, the first king who had the privilege of calling God his father. But when will he be the highest of all the kings of heaven and earth? Well, centuries later, great David's greater son would be born in Bethlehem. He comes to collect on that promise. He is right now ruling over all the seas and the sea monsters and the prodigals and the harsh husbands and bitter wives and confused children, confused generations, all the sinners, all the sinners. And we know that whatever hardship is ahead of us, we do not face it without the guarantee of His steadfast love. And His firm covenant faithfulness. And how do we get to say that? Because if Jesus is our King, then God is with us. If Jesus is our King, then God is with us. So raise the festal shout. Raise the psalmist's victory cry. The same guy who wrote the hymn, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, has a great Christmas hymn that's kind of fallen out of use, but I'm going to read it to you to close. Lo, God, our God is come. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. Blessed be that happy morn. O happy, lowly, lofty birth. Now God, our God, is come to earth. Rejoice, our God is come in love and lowliness. The Son of God is come, the sons of men to bless. God with us now descends to dwell. God in flesh, Emmanuel. Praise ye the Word made flesh. True God, true man is He. Praise ye the Christ of God, to whom all glory be. Praise ye the Lamb that once was slain. Praise ye the King who comes to reign. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, we thank you for these words of Psalm 89, and for the ones that I didn't get to, may we, may we explore those next week as well. Thank you for the promises that we have of your steadfast love. That because of your covenant with David and because of the new covenant with the greater David, Jesus Christ our King, we can remain certain of all of the promises that you've given to us. Indeed, we have the confidence that they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.